0: Welcome to Faith Is. This is the place where we stretch toward God's high calling. We don't shrink from what God says to us. We embrace what He says to us because we know that what He says to us is for our good and we're eager to hear it because we want to live the best lives possible. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens and we are so glad you join us on this program. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and our church provides these programs to help you. We want to help you understand what the Bible says. We want to help you have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because that's what faith is, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we want to have confidence in God, and and to start out with, why don't, we think a little bit about this idea of how we think about god you know i grew up in a wonderful church in southwestern ohio very grateful for the people there that helped me that they taught me the bible stories they uh, encouraged me i had a lot of wonderful experiences there but i also caught in that era of the church and i don't think anybody intentionally meant for me to get that but i remember And I think it shaped too much of my thinking. I remember that it always seemed like we had to be on guard lest God find some reason to get us. We just had to be very careful about what we did, what we said, because God was always watching and we didn't want to risk him getting us. Well, okay, I get that. We should be diligent about what we do and what we say and all of that kind of stuff. And, And I think you probably are. I think a lot of us are. But I've been thinking about the motivation for some of that lately and and I've been reading the Bible and I've been thinking about how God approached Abraham and how he approached his people through the story of God's people through the Hebrew scriptures what we call the Old Testament and all the way to the coming of Jesus. And really if I had to say It seems to me like God has put up with a lot of stuff from his people because he really, really wants our good. He wants us to do well. He wants us to thrive, shall we say. He doesn't promise health, wealth, and all kinds of prosperity. That's not what I'm suggesting. But God has always wanted to bless and provide good things for his people. He is not characterized in the Bible as a God who's always looking watching, hoping for a reason to get us because we stepped out of line someplace. Now, we don't take license that we can step out of line any way we want to, but we do need to think about, is God a God that really is intent on catching us in a misstep? Or is he a God that is looking for reasons to bless and to help and to guide and to give us everything we need to do what He wants us to do, and to do well, and and live the life that He intends for us to live. Well, I think that's an important perspective, and I think it's important when we come to the Scriptures today, we want to look at, and the topics, because there are some, how should I say, um, heavy thoughts in here. Some real heavy thoughts. And sometimes we don't approach these kinds of things with the right perspective, the right attitude the right sense of what God might be wanting to say to us. And I've probably got more than we can go over today, and I'm sure I have less than what some of these subjects really require. We're not going to get in-depth on any of them. I mean, when you start talking about murder and anger and reconciliation and divorce and all those kind of things, well, yeah, you heard it. We're going to talk a little, little bit about divorce today. We need to. But when you get into those subjects, they require a lot more detail and depth in what we can do here. But I do want us to give attention to them that I don't want us to shrink from them. I want us to to take heed to what Jesus says, because we're going to be looking at what Jesus said to his followers on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a significant statement, and it has some very pointed things to say. And I think we will miss The point of the pointed things Jesus had to say if we don't think about Him, if we don't think about God correctly. God's intention is to redeem and restore everyone everywhere. That's why He sent Jesus, so that everybody could be reconciled to God. And because of that, He thinks about us in ways that He wants to. To help us. How can he help? What can he do? And you read the story of the Bible, and God has left no stone unturned, you might say, to help people be faithful to him. He's been disappointed a lot by people. I'm sure I've disappointed him. Hope you haven't. But he is so patient with us, and he so much wants us to succeed as his people, that he needs to go to great lengths to help us, including including sending his son to die in our place because we violated the terms of the covenant and deserved death. But Jesus took that on himself, so we didn't have to die. Very significant. And we say that a lot, but I've sometimes have wondered if we say it without really realizing that that the point is, God wants us to succeed as his people. So let's plunge in. Uh, there's a lot of things we need to talk about. And, and we're, we are going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, many years ago when I visited Israel, I was privileged to go to the Mount of, of uh, what they, what they called the Sermon on the Mount site. And I think they call it Mount of Beatitudes. There's a church there that commemorates that site. Small church. Very attractive setting. There's actually a plaque there that has a commemoration of an event that involved the Wesleyan Church, my particular denomination, on that site, I got to see that. It's a very beautiful hillside, slopes down toward the Sea of Galilee. We don't know for sure if that's where it was, but it sure was interesting to stand there and think about the possibilities. Well, we can think about the possibilities of the setting, but really the possibilities of what Jesus was teaching are just riveting. Now, we ended the program last week talking about how Jesus had challenged people and said that their righteousness needed to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's a huge, bold statement. I think I mentioned, only in passing, that that we might be able to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount in light of that statement. And perhaps what Jesus is trying to say to us is that The rest of the Sermon on the Mount is a reflection of the kind of righteousness he has in mind. I think you can make a case for that. But I also said it's a rather chilling statement because, wow, think about that. Think about that. The scribes and the Pharisees were all about righteousness, and they were striving to be righteous in their way, the way they understood. And along comes Jesus and says, Our righteousness has to exceed their righteousness. That's really something, don't you think? So we pursued that a little bit. And I suggested we know a Pharisee, because we know the Apostle Paul. And I took us to Colossians chapter 3, where Paul describes himself as a Pharisee. Pretty astounding that he describes himself as a Pharisee, don't you think? Well, he was. So... He didn't shrink from that. You might have thought he'd be embarrassed that he was, but he, he he owned it. He understood what that was all about. And not only did he describe himself as a Pharisee, but he says that he was zealous. He persecuted the church. And as to righteousness under the law, this is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So I said, we have an example of a Pharisee whose righteousness was not enough as Jesus describes it. Remember, the Pharisees were trying to call the people to righteousness, and and by that they meant alignment with the covenant, with the law, that they were to follow God and be obedient to the covenant, to the law that he had given them. And Paul comes along and says, he's blameless. And Jesus comes along and says, not so fast. you got to be better than the Pharisees. And, and the question then comes up is, wow, what's he mean? How can we be better than the Pharisees? And, well, I think we're going to talk about that in terms of a few things from the Sermon on the Mount. But we also need to recognize that, that Paul went on to say, after he said that he was blameless under the law, he went on to say in verse 7 of chapter 3 in Philippians, Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, what Paul is saying is that he finds the righteousness Jesus is talking about in Jesus, in Christ, and he considers all of the rest of that stuff worthless. So, we took hope, we take hope that if Jesus says our righteousness needs to exceed, that of the scribes and Pharisees, then Jesus will provide both what we need to know and how we need to live to accomplish that righteousness. And Paul gave us a glimpse of that vision, and Jesus gives us another glimpse, or a, maybe you could say a more expanded glimpse even, in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we want to take a look at that. Now we're going we're, we're to think about this Sermon on the Mount a little bit before we get into a few verses, and, and and we're going to touch on part of this day, but we're not going to get to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, you can go read that in Matthew, starting with, with chapter five. But there are some similarities to what goes on here. Jesus is speaking very straightforward, giving the people the word of God, and and there are a lot of similarities between the way Jesus is portrayed in Matthew and the way Moses is portrayed in the scriptures earlier in the Old, in the Old Testament. But Jesus is giving them the straight straight word from god just like moses did when he came down from mount Sinai, and yet when we look at the things in the sermon on the mount we say really are we expected to live up to what jesus says well if we say no we aren't expected to live up to what jesus says aren't we denying that jesus tells us the truth aren't we denying the bible so we can't really say no he doesn't give us appropriate expectations But if we say yes, and we look at some of the things that he says there, we we think, wow, this is impossibly difficult. How can anyone do this? Well, someone thinking about that and feeling a little frustrated might say, well, we're under grace. And so grace makes it possible because grace covers our failure or grace comes first and then we obey. Well, let's be absolutely clear about one thing first, that grace does not and should not be understood to cover our failure to live up to God's high calling. Okay, make sure you understand that. Grace is not an excuse. Grace enables us to live up to what God calls us. It's not an excuse that gets us off the hook, shall we say. We need to think about that carefully and not make that mistake. People often say, well, we're under grace, and then they forget all about what God wants them to do, because they think grace takes care of all of that that's not the right understanding of grace It's, it's it, for, you know, put it simple for us to think that grace somehow excuses our nonsense is just not biblical ok so we got to get over our nonsense shall we say but then people say well if grace comes first then maybe I can obey because of that well maybe but but Jesus doesn't say that at all Jesus just lays it out there He puts it out there for all to see and for all to step up to. And the way I like to think about the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus' moral vision for his people. He sees possibilities in us, and he sees how we can have the best life when we live up to his moral vision. And so he puts it out there for all of us and and invites us to pursue the vision. So, you know, people might shy away from it, but don't. Don't shy away. People might say it's too demanding, but it's not because we're going to talk about how to understand that, and I think it'll help us understand that Jesus really is teaching us the truth and helping us see in a way that we can embrace it and and go for it. We don't want to deny it or or anything like that. We just want to go for it. Now, I'm using a lot of work from a man named Scott McKnight. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a seminary professor. Don't hold that against him. He's one of the good seminary professors, okay? And he refers to, to what we're going to talk about in, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount as, as Jesus' moral vision, that phrase that I have used already and will use again. And he, he, he thinks of the moral vision in three ways. And in typical seminary professor way, he uses words like it's messianic, and it's ecclesial, and it's pneumatic. Well, what he means is Jesus was the Messiah, so we view it through the eyes of, of the Son of God incarnate, Messiah himself. And when he says ecclesial, he means that we live out Jesus' vision in the context of the church and with the support of the church, or sometimes I say the people of God. Same thing. I think that makes a lot of sense, don't you? Of course, Jesus gives us a messianic vision because when Messiah comes, he's going to usher in a whole new way of thinking about things. And Jesus regularly said, as he introduced himself, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so here he comes as Messiah. And yes, he established the church and that took place on the day of Pentecost. And yes, we live in context of church life and it, all its messiness, but all of its benefits as well. And then he says, thirdly, it's pneumatic. And what he means by that is that we only live the life God lays out there for us, stretches us to uh, to accomplish. We only can live that by the power of the Holy Spirit. But, of course, Jesus said, wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And we live now in the age when the Spirit comes to his people. Now, probably most of the time today, I will refer to to this idea of Jesus' moral vision as his messianic vision, or maybe his kingdom vision. I kind of like both of those expressions. I'm not using that expression exactly the way Scott McKnight did, so don't blame him for what I mess up. In fact, I'm using many of his ideas throughout the program today. And I usually say when I use someone's ideas, I usually say, Anything good that you hear me say, that you say, yeah, that's helpful, well, let's give him credit for that. Anything I mess up, don't blame him, because it's not his fault. But I'm indebted to his work. He's He's been very helpful in, in many ways, and I've followed his work for a long time. And part of the reason I'm, I'm using my expression of kingdom vision or messianic vision is because it's a little more complicated to get into it the way he does, I'm not discrediting what he did. I'm just trying to make it a little bit clearer and simpler. I hope I can. But, I, but I'm absolutely convinced that he and others are correct, that the Sermon on the Mount makes a lot more sense when we are, see it as Jesus' messianic vision, or his vision for what life in the kingdom is meant to be. Uh, another New Testament scholar you may have heard of, N.T. Wright, says, says it this way, the Sermon, referring to the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon isn't just about how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love ourselves into the world that needs it so badly. I thought, wow, that's well said. And we need to think about the Sermon that way as reflecting the love that God has for people into the world around us because of the way we behave and live our lives. Another very wise person, Stanley Hauerhaus, said, The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. Think about that. The life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. Well, that's a description of the life in the church and the way it's meant to be. So the church really is the context of a lot of this, and we should we should embrace that and appreciate that. So, starting there, let's go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. See, I looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and I saw all these requirements, and I'm thinking about all this stuff that can we really live up to, and I know lots of people look at it that way, and lots of people, when they come to the Sermon on the Mount, they want to give excuses for for not being able to live that way. And so I got to thinking well, how did people respond to the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus was finished? Because it's a couple chapters long, 5, 6, and 7. And I thought, how did the people in those days that sat there and listened to his teaching, how did they respond? Did did they get um, upset? Were they angry? that Who does he think he is telling us we have to do that? Were they discouraged, thinking, oh, there's no way we can do that? Did they go away sad because... They couldn't quite figure out how to wrap their heads around what Jesus was calling them to? Well, apparently not, because the summary at the end of chapter 7 says, now that, that Jesus had finished saying these words, the crowds were astounded by his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So they were astounded by it. They were likely intrigued by it. They were probably amazed by it. That word astounding could, could involve a lot of those kinds of things. They certainly were not indignant and they certainly did not respond negatively. And we should learn from them so that as we listen to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, we should make sure we don't respond with, oh, that's impossible, or surely Jesus doesn't understand my life and what's happened to me. He does, and he's calling us to a kingdom vision or a messianic vision of what life in his kingdom really should be all about and how we, as N.T. Wright said, how we should reflect that love to the world around us. It's a big challenge, but Jesus believes we can do it. So I guess we ought to give it a try. So let me explain a little bit what I mean by that by plunging into Matthew chapter 5. And we'll start with verse 21. There are a number of sections, usually paragraphs in most, most English Bibles, that we'll look at. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but let me just read them first so you hear the text, and then let's think about what's going on here. Words of Jesus, again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, that's quite a statement that Jesus starts with. And, and we don't disagree with him that, that, we shouldn't, that we shouldn't murder. We understand that. He's pretty pointed about that. Ten Commandments says that thou shalt not kill, meaning thou shalt not murder. And we understand that, that murdering another human being is really offensive to God because God is the author of life, and we attack the image of God in the life of that person. And so we need to be very careful about this idea of murder. We don't, we don't, we don't go around killing people. All right? That's, that's pretty straightforward. Nobody really would doubt that. And everybody would understand that there would be a penalty to that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He seems to recognize. <laughs> obviously, he recognizes. Of course, he recognizes that the real problem is anger. And Jesus knows anger leads to murder, so he deals with the root problem. Anger. Have you ever known anyone, uh, I think I might have known a person or two, but I I really don't know for sure right now, that seemed like they would have no emotions in their life if they didn't have anger? Uh, have you ever known someone who, who tries to control everyone with their anger? You know, there's a saying that that I just really find reprehensible. And I think every every woman should feel this way too. That That's just to you know, get ready for it. The Sermon on the Mount has some straight statements. So do I. But you've heard the statement, if mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. Well, I don't think any mama should embrace that idea at all because their anger then just becomes manipulative. And Jesus is here saying that no anger, no anger don't be angry put your anger aside and and he says that because anger is a serious problem and it leads to behaviors that we would likely regret leads even to murder so Jesus deals with the root of that and says don't be angry we're supposed to we're supposed to have love for our neighbors not anger and he's talking about that straight up now i need to pastorally mention this i think This is not about disagreements. I've been around church quite a long time, and I've noticed that most church people are allergic to any kind of conflict. Well, I I don't really mind if somebody disagrees with me. Do you? I mean, it's great when everybody agrees with me and all that. Sure, wonderful. But I don't mind if somebody disagrees with me. We can have an honest disagreement. And I've also noticed that sometimes I've had good disagreements with people. And the result was we came out better on the other side. Maybe it was about an issue we were making a decision on, but we didn't take it personally. We realized we just looked at it differently. and, And when you don't take it personally, when you don't get angry about it, when you just work through the ideas, then you often come out in a better place in the end. So it's not about disagreements. It's not saying don't disagree with someone. It's saying don't be angry. Don't use your anger to manipulate Don't let your anger get the better of you. Really, what he's getting at is verse 23. And and he kind of points it out in an interesting way. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Notice the key word is be reconciled. You see, that's the next part of this idea. You see, murder wouldn't be a problem if people were reconciled with each other, right? It's only when anger gets the better of someone and they lash out and it ends in a tragic, tragic event. And so Jesus is saying, don't be angry. He's saying, take another step deeper and be reconciled. Now, if you go to fix a problem... You deal with the real problem, and the real problem is reconciliation, even more than anger. So, Jesus gives a rather startling statement, Leave worship to reconcile with your brother or sister. Leave worship? Does he really mean that? Well, some people say that's an exaggeration to make a point, and probably it is. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to leave church because of something that God says to you on that moment. But if he says something about it, it doesn't mean he wants you to take care of it. So it could be an exaggeration, and and, and we need to understand that, because there are other places in the sermon that clearly it's an exaggeration. Now, the other thing that that we need to make sure of is, we're not talking about something that you have against someone. Maybe they did something, and, and you're still harboring that resentment, or whatever, or irritation, or... Yeah, anger or sense of betrayal. It could be a lot of things, okay? If it's, if it's something that somebody did that you're now responding badly to, your job is to forgive. Just forgive them and be done with it. That you can do. You don't have to leave worship to do that. You just do it. See, if God says to you, you've had a bad attitude towards someone and you shouldn't be feeling that way, You need to you need to put that down so you can be reconciled with them, then that's what we need to do, right? So many people have have looked at this verse and they've they've thought it was um, an admonition for them to go tell someone how much they have felt badly about them. That's happened to me a few times in my life. Somebody will say to me, "Well, I didn't like what you did there, and so I've been really out of sorts with you for a while." Or they'll use different language. It, usually, it's not I've been angry and wanted to kill you. It's nothing like that. But they'll they'll say that to me, and and that's fine. I'm I'm a pastor. I'm a big big enough person. I understand that. And I'm happy to put them at ease because in most cases, I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea. Well, they didn't really need to come to me. If it made them feel better, confessing that well and good. Confession is good many times. But I would urge a lot of caution. If you've hated someone for years, don't go up to them and say, I've hated you for years, but I don't hate you anymore. That's not really going to help. Okay. They may not have known you hated them. Just lay down the hatred, lay down the anger, and start taking the steps toward reconciliation. And maybe you can rebuild the trust that has been lost, and maybe you can have a friend in a level you never imagined. Well, I didn't know we'd end at that point, but it looks like it's about time for us to take a break, and maybe that's a good time to take a breather, because maybe some of us need to think about that and forgive someone and get on with it. Because we're going to get on with it in just a minute, we're going to take another step toward and through the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you'll join us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
1: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you, introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. Oh, the America many of us grew up with and love is under a relentless and pernicious siege from those carrying the banners of socialism, communism, Marxism. AmericaOutloud.com is the antidote to these poison-isms. Well, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. And this is the place where faith is our commitment to each other to developing absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're, today, thinking our way through, pondering our way through, letting God challenge us through a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. And we've recognized that He says some really straight things to us, and we need to learn from that, and we need to take heed to what Jesus says. We've learned so far that we need to lay our anger down and take steps toward reconciliation. And I cautioned us just before the break that we need to to take care of it as an inside job when we've held something against someone else. We don't go to them and tell them we've hated them for years or whatever it happens to be. You might have. You might have held something against somebody for years. Just lay it down. They probably don't even know it. And you going and telling them is not going to help them. Might be a catharsis to you, but if you need to tell someone, go to your pastor and tell him or her. And let them pray for you. Let that confession... Be all that's needed because what you need to do is be reconciled to that person and then take steps after the forgiveness to rebuild the friendship to whatever level it can. Now, I want to also say this because pastorally, you and I know there are some people that try as you will, try as you might, no matter what you do, it just doesn't seem possible to get along with them. Now I'm not here to throw stones at them or you, all right? I'm just here to say that we need to recognize that sometimes happens. Now later in the scriptures uh, we learn that we are supposed to bless people who per- bless uh, or bless people who persecute us, bless them, rejoice with people who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You might remember that, and it goes on to say if it is possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me run that by again. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, you might try to reconcile with someone who will not be reconciled with. All right? Well, that becomes their problem. It might hurt you. It might be a dagger in your soul. I don't know how you might describe it. You might really regret it. Maybe you know that the reconciliation is necessary because of something you did and their unwillingness to, to to move on from that and to forgive and to rebuild the relationship. I don't, I don't know. But sometimes there are just those people that, that you just can't live at peace with them. I like to say that I don't have any enemies, but over my lifetime there's been a few people who haven't liked me real well. Well, I, I didn't return the favor. Uh, I, I mean... I struggle with some of those kind of things too but as far as i can i i just try to lay that stuff down it's a challenge for all of us so we need to we need to give heed to that and to recognize that if someone won't be reconciled you just have to let that go and do the best you can to be the best person you can but i like in summary before we move on to the next part i like what scott mcknight said in his commentary on the sermon on the mount he said nothing expresses kingdom realities more than reconciled relations. And boy, I think that's a big statement. I think he's gone to something there. So let's reconcile with each other as best we can. And hopefully, by the grace of God and the prayers and support of the church, people will become reconciled to each other because that's what God really wants. Well, let's go to the next section. It concerns adultery. Are you up for that? Wow, here we go. Verse 27 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell mercy sakes well that's true it's better to lose an eye or a hand than to go to hell there's no doubt about that jesus was right but what in the world is going on here well like i said some things in the sermon on the mount really come right at us and we have to step back and make sure we understand them adultery you know sometimes adultery has often been in the media these days portrayed as a wonderful thing As someone found their true soulmate, and it wasn't their spouse that they're married to. Well, that's just baloney, and that's just horrendous. Don't get caught up in that. We need to deal with, those of us who are married, we need to deal with our own hearts so that we don't fall into adultery. And and when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, that's what Proverbs 4.23 is about. Above all else, guard your heart. Above all else. Did you hear that? Above all else, the proverb writer says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, generally speaking, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the part of us that thinks, feels, and makes decisions, chooses right and wrong. So the proverb writer is saying, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So if you don't guard your heart, You run the risk of doing something you don't want to do. And in this case, we're talking about adultery. Adultery, simply understood as as the betrayal of one's spouse. And we don't want to do that. Another English translation, the New Revised Standard Version, what I read was the NIV. The New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. All vigilance. So we need to keep a guard on our hearts. And we can do that. Maybe you've been tempted. Well, then just stop putting yourself in the place of temptation. Guard your heart. Now, how do we do that? Well, one of the ways that I suggest people actively pursue to guard their hearts and actually actually, to, to have a better life, to follow Jesus faithfully, this applies to everybody and everything, but if you're struggling with guarding your heart in particular, you need to put yourself in the stream of grace. Now, that's the way I describe it. What I mean by that is you need to put yourself in places where God can minister to your heart so that you are not distracted and drawn away and that you can guard your heart. So what do I mean by the stream of grace? Well, church attendance is part of the stream of grace. You know, people have taken to think that, well, if I show up at church a couple times a month, I'm pretty regular. Well, baloney, there's not much in your life that if you went 50% of the time, they'd think you were regular. All right. If, if you only work two and a half days a week and they were expecting you to be there all five, they wouldn't think that that was a good thing. Why do we treat God that way? And I know people say, oh, but this guy, but that, aren't we tired of excuses yet? Didn't God call us to follow him, put those excuses down? Of course he did. So it's a very important discipline to show up to church every week. If your church meets on Saturday night, some churches have Saturday night services, go to Saturday night service. Great idea. Might keep you out of a lot of Saturday night mischief. If your church has Sunday morning, go on Sunday morning. But go to church regularly. Don't let anything stop you. In fact, order your life, order your week around making sure you're in church When your church meets. And by the way, I need to mention, make sure your church is faithful to the Bible. Don't go to the church that's closest to your house that you can get to easily and quickly and all that stuff. I know that's a wonderful convenience. But go to the church that's near where you live that's most faithful to the Bible. And show up all the time. Never make them wonder if you're going to be there. Second thing is, read the Bible. You know, there's nothing... Worse than not reading the Bible, than not having a Bible. You need to have a Bible, and you need to read it. Just carrying it around doesn't help. And by the way, you can get lots of copies of the Bible at no charge on an app for your phone. So you can find the Bible. The Gideons have one. There's one called the Bible app. You can find the Bible, and you need to read it. Join a Bible study group. Absolutely beneficial. I benefit so much from the guys I meet with every Wednesday morning. And we have breakfast and enjoy the food and the camaraderie. But we also enjoy the times we talk about what the Bible says and that we take a look at life and how God wants us to live it. You need the fellowship and the support of a Bible study group. Find one. Be a part of it. Enter in. Yes, it might be awkward at first if you've never done that, but you'll get used to it. They'll get used to you. You'll get used to them. It'll be fine. Find a Bible study group and pray. Pray. If you don't know how to pray, use the Lord's Prayer. It's easy. It's not complicated. And it covers nearly anything you need to pray about. So put yourself in the stream of grace. That's very important. Very important. Um, Now, there is one thing we should say about this passage that uh, I think is quite helpful and and uh, important a lot of times you will hear people say i read the bible literally you have probably heard that or i believe the literal understanding of the bible i heard a guy recently say he was very literal about how he reads the bible i thought yeah he probably is that's just kind of the way he's wired but i don't think too many people read the bible that literally because i don't think i've ever come across someone who <laughs> Who tore their right eye out or cut their right hand off. And I hope I don't, because this is clearly not what Jesus is asking people to do. Clearly not. No one in the history of Christendom that I'm aware of took that kind of stuff seriously. It's an exaggeration that Jesus puts in there, so we'll pay attention. He says, It's this important that you guard your heart and keep yourself away from adultery. It's this important. It's so important that you'd be better off cutting off your own hand. Oh, that's a horrendous thought. Or tearing out your own eye. That's even worse. It's an exaggeration to stress the importance of faithfulness to one's spouse and to guarding one's heart. See, it's an exaggeration to hammer home to us the importance of marital faithfulness. And we can do that, right? Because we have faith. We have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And God wouldn't tell us to do this. If he didn't know, we could do it, because he would help us accomplish the task. All right, so let's go on. We're pretty deep into it now. We've been through murder and anger and reconciliation and adultery and, well, what's next but divorce. Verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh boy, every time the subject of divorce comes up, uh, everybody in the church gets nervous. I don't know if you've ever been in a church and the pastor starts talking about divorce and it gets real quiet. Divorce is one of those things that's touched a lot of us. Growing up as a, as a kid, I didn't know anybody. There wasn't anybody that I knew that had been touched by divorce, but it wasn't long as I grew into adulthood that I discovered many people have been touched by divorce. It's not a pleasant thing. It's not a, it's not something we like to talk about. It's a reality in many people's lives. It's a reality that God can, can help us overcome. And he can redeem us from our mistakes if we've made mistakes relative to divorce. And it is a difficult subject, no doubt about it. As a pastor, I know that's a difficult subject. It's difficult for me to bring it up today because it's impossible to discuss it and to go over things that you might be interested in knowing. We can't address it completely. There's just so much involved in it. I'm not trying to to get away from the subject. I'm just being realistic that we can't. But when Jesus talks about divorce, it's very important for us to remember that he is giving us his messianic or kingdom vision of the best life for all of us. Okay, so keep that in mind. That's what Jesus is about, the best life for all of us. And people will say, this is where I know we can't cover all these things. People will say, well, does God expect us to be miserable all our life? Well, (laughs) the answer is, of course not. What makes you think you have to be miserable the rest of your life and that only a divorce will solve that problem? We did talk about reconciliation, didn't we? And right there, people just don't want to think about the hard work that's sometimes involved in reconciliation. But anyway, you understand that this is a tough subject. You understand I know that. I want you to hear what I say carefully because I'm not trying to drop the hammer on you. I'm trying to help you see that Jesus has a vision for life here and now, his messianic vision or his kingdom vision, however you want to think of it, for how we should live and how we can thrive in our lives today. And he says pretty clearly, I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We've already talked about the the difficulty of adultery. And Jesus says straight up, no divorce. In so many words, he says, no divorce. Now, part of what Jesus was addressing, and this is where we need to understand things, so you don't get too, don't get too wobbly or bent just yet. There's plenty of time for you to be mad at me and yell at the radio. It's okay. But divorce during Jesus' day was all too easy. And that was the problem he was addressing. He was calling them, and he calls us, to a higher vision what I've called here a messianic or kingdom vision. That's what he wants for us, a higher way of living, a higher view of things. Okay, so now we understand that Jesus' intent toward us is for our well-being, for our good. He wants the best life for us. So, as we approach this, let's let's take some advice, and, and I'm grateful again for Scott McKnight's idea on this, but, but he said it really well. He said, we are confused about love. And, and I have never heard anybody say we're confused about it. I've thought about this for a long time. We don't have a good understanding of love. We just don't. Christians don't. People out who aren't Christians don't. And I thought his way of saying was, we're confused was good. Keep in mind, Hollywood portrayals are not God's definition of love. They just aren't. Romance novels typically are not God's definition of love. TV shows, there are, there are TV channels that are devoted to the kind of movies that that full of romance and idealism, but I'm afraid that even they are not God's idea of love in so many cases. And we get confused because we, we, we see these things and we assume that's what love means. But God understands marriage to be based on his understanding of love And God's idea of love is based on covenant, or the idea of covenant love. So God initiated this idea of covenant with Abraham. First he was Abram, then he became Abraham. That was all part of the covenant. You may remember that. I think we've talked about that. And Scott McKnight describes God's idea of covenant love as, God covenants to be with us, to be for us, and for that to last until full redemption, or we might say his kingdom comes. So three parts of that. God covenants to be with us, to be for us, and to hang with us, we might say, until full redemption. He doesn't intend to abandon us. He's going to remain faithful to us. Now, wherever you see that kind of love portrayed in literature or movies or television, whatever, fine, I'm not going to argue that with you. But the next time you see love portrayed, ask yourself, is the love they're portraying, the kind of love that covenants between these two people, that they're going to be with each other, that they're going to be for each other, and they're going to hang in there, be faithful to each other, until full redemption, or until God's kingdom comes, or as we often say, until death do us part. That's how we need to think about love that's the problem we don't think about love that way and that's why scott mcknight says we're confused about love so you see marital love should reflect god's idea of covenant love because marriage is the closest thing we have in our world today to a covenant you see the idea of marital love because it's based on this idea of covenant is intended to reflect God's faithfulness to his people. See, God, all the way through the story of the Bible, was faithful to his people in spite of their nonsense. And he intends us, in our marriages, to be faithful to each other. It matters to God because he's faithful, and he wants us to reflect that to the world around us. Good advice from another guy who had a lot of wisdom. He said, if we come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, we miss the point. Now, it's probably an oversimplification, but always consider marriage in light of covenant. When God took Abraham as as his covenant partner, he made promises to Abraham and expected faithfulness from Abraham. It was a very strong relationship, a deep and lasting commitment. And we need to bring those kinds of deep and lasting commitments to marriage, to covenant-level commitment, like God showed us. So that being true... And again, it's probably an oversimplification, but it's something for you to think about and pray about. That being true, the only permissible reasons, it seems, that the Bible talks about it, and the Bible talks about this more than just in this place where Jesus gives us his vision for the covenant people, for the kingdom. But in simple terms, it seems to me that the only justification, and we shouldn't be looking for justification, okay? We should be looking for reconciliation. But the only justification or divorce comes down to things like serious violations of the covenant relationship like adultery abuse abandonment and before you grab hold of any of these kind of things and say okay this is my ticket out of this miserable relationship i'm in because that's what people are looking for sometimes you should make sure before you ever make that decision you spend time with your pastor and other godly church leaders and you work toward Every possibility of reconciliation. Almost everybody that reconciles is glad they did, by the way. And never pursue divorce if your church and its leaders don't agree that it's the only answer, because they will help you recognize true covenant, serious covenant violations. Well, this section ends up with a section concerning oaths, and it starts in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said, Jesus is talking, to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, anything more than that comes from the evil one. Get that? Anything more than honesty comes from... The evil one. Now, Jesus understood that in his day, they they scaled the, the truth. You know, they had to say, like we sometimes say, I promise it's true. You know, as though we have to say something more to convince people we're telling the truth. Or we might say, on my honor, it's true. Or we might have more dramatic ways of saying it. But we scale our words to emphasize that we're telling the truth. And Jesus says what? Just tell the truth. Because telling the truth matters to God. It clearly does. If you haven't read it, read Revelation 21.8 and see what God says the penalty is for liars. It's it's very serious. Revelation 21.8. It's a very severe penalty for liars. It was a lie, you remember, that the evil one told Adam and Eve that resulted in them eating the forbidden fruit. Is it any wonder God takes lying seriously? Good grief. Of course he does. Well... We live in a world where far too many people don't take lying seriously. And I've given up listening to a lot of people that might give a speech or might be on television or whatever, because I know they have lied. And if they've lied and are unrepentant liars, I can't be sure they're telling me the truth. I turned off the television the other night because someone was on there and I knew that person to be a confirmed liar. In fact, some of the things I heard said were lies. And I turned off the tell. I said, why am I listening to this? This is ridiculous. I almost said it out loud, but I I thought just that much in my mind. This is ridiculous. And I turned it off. And, you know, we need to take lying seriously. And the way we take it seriously is that we need to be honest. 100% truthful. No equivocations. Tell the truth. You might misspeak sometime, tell someone something out of good intent you thought was right and later it was wrong. That's not a lie. A lie is an intention to deceive. We don't want to do that. Well, we have covered a lot of ground today, and, and I hope you've gotten some help in understanding the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of challenging things in here for Jesus to say to us, and a lot of things that cut to the quick of our lives. And some of these that he has said may have really gotten to you. And I want to encourage you that God only tells us the truth to help us have the best life possible. God's only intention is to bless and to heal and to reconcile and to build up people. And He wants to do that for you. So I hope if God has spoken to you, you will turn and be reconciled with Him. Because that's His deepest desire. Don't run away. Run toward. Too many people run away from God. Don't run away. Run to God. And run back here next week and we'll talk some more. I'm Pastor Rick.